joining our Privateer podcast today. This episode is going to be on all things fermentation. I'm Maggie Campbell. I'm the president and head distiller at Privateer Rum. I appreciate you spending some time and listening in today. Thanks. Hey guys, uh, I'm very excited to get this podcast started. This is the first podcast I've ever recorded uh, myself ever, so bear with me. Thank you all for your patience. I'm starting off with a hot toddy in my glass, so this has got a little dab of honey. I'm a beekeeper, so I use my local honey here, a little bit of lemon, and then two ounces of Privateer Reserve Rum. It's probably a rum name you haven't heard before. Uh, right now I'm using our research and development sample to make this, um, but this will be a blend of rums, about three to five years, really good, rich, delicious, a little more power to it, a little more umph. You know, as distillers, we've become more confident over the years and been able to push a lot more flavor through, and I'm really excited to be releasing this, um, coming up very shortly this spring. So you guys should be seeing that out and about. And I'll obviously do a full podcast on the DNA of that rum when the time comes. But for now, I'm, you know, doing the very important research of putting it in my glass. So today is all about fermentation. I get asked a lot about fermentation. I'm a little bit of a yeast dork. Um, it was definitely my focus uh, earlier in my studies and something I'm very, very passionate about. I truly believe that all quality and all flavor we will ever have as a producer begins in fermentation. Distillation will just expose that quality and aging will just refine that quality. You will not be able to make an excellent product without an excellent fermentation. You know, garbage in, garbage out is something repeated to me a lot in my early days of distilling by the incredible fermentation master, Todd Leopold, who was nice enough to support me along my early days and even now. And, you know, it's absolutely true. You have to start with excellent ingredients, excellent knowledge, and excellent practices to be able to achieve what it is you're looking for. So let's start with the equipment that we have. For us, we have a wash kettle, which is a 500 gallon stainless steel tank. It has a jacket on it where hot steam is injected into the jacket to heat the wash. And there's also a paddle inside that causes stirring. It's like a giant mixer, if you will. Going into this wash kettle is going to be water. All of the water coming into Privateer is treated with a charcoal filter and then also with an iron filter. Iron is something that can really mess up your spirits. Uh, it can cause color issues, all sorts of problems, especially as they age. So for us, we want to make sure we address that since we do live in New England. The water comes into the wash kettle. It is heated up to a temperature where the molasses just melts. And then of course we're adding our grade A single origin molasses. I have a feeling I should do an entire episode on sugar. Uh, it's something I'm very passionate about, but we source ours from a 
uh, mill in Guatemala. The cane comes from a single volcanic valley. They are also a member of Sugar for Good. So there's a lot of worker and environmental protections, which is something I'm very passionate about. Single origin molasses is incredibly rare uh, in the sugar world. Um, most molasses is made from large co-ops and large collections of sugarcane. But like I said, we need to have a whole other episode because I could get really lost in that. It's something I'm very passionate about. So our grade A molasses is added to the tank in the right proportion to water to make a slightly dense sugary syrup. If you were making whiskey, this would be malt syrup, so sugary malt syrup that would be uh, in your wash kettle. This is then for us pumped over into our fermenters and we fill our fermenters with pre-chilled water and all of that water of course is filtered as well. This brings the warm mixture of the molasses syrup and the cold water in the fermenter to just the right temperature where we can begin our fermentation. So we make a concentrated syrup that then we put into the rest of this water to bring it to the correct amount of sugar concentration that by the time fermentation is complete, we will be at the correct percent ABV that we want to hit. If you add too much sugar, you could ferment too high or leave residual sugar behind. And if you put too little, then the energy and water you're using in distillation is not used to its proper efficiency and it can be a bit wasteful. So for us, we really want to target exactly where we want to end up at 9% ABV when we're done fermenting. So the sugar concentration of your wash going in absolutely determines the percent ABV coming out of that fermenter because it is all sugar that is converted to all alcohol. As I mentioned, in whiskey, this is malt syrup, sugary syrup. In brandy, this is going to be apples and pears and the natural sugars found there. And even with potatoes, again, you're cooking those starches to convert them over to sugar for fermentation. Because this sugar is what the yeast consume and then expel in its place alcohol while releasing CO2. And that's the bare bones of fermentation. We're going to get in a little bit deeper on other products that the yeast create, effects they have, etc. Um, but you did hear me mention really quick that we target 9% ABV. And for us, many distillers can feel pressure to ferment a lot higher. And that's, you know, their choices and their stylistic decisions. For us, once you get up above that point, the yeast really kind of get drunk like we do and get a little sloppy and they can create more impurities and more methanol proportionally. So for us, that's where we find that we get really good efficiency, but we don't want to compromise quality in exchange for yield. So we're very particular to not push up above that point. Um, and for us, that's an important aspect. So as I mentioned, there's other outputs that happen during this. Um, one thing that can happen is organic acidity is created. Uh, certain yeast can contribute more than others. There's also CO2 redissolving as carbonic acid, which is causing more of a pH drop. Um, and for a fermentation, we really like this pH drop. Uh, as the pH drops, 
and there's more acidity present, acidity becomes really important in distillation and in aging for flavor creation. And we'll talk about that in later episodes, but we like a nice tangy fermentation. You'll see old historic writings about, you know, particularly rum making, but also in whiskey, about how you can taste the fermentation. And it's a little tangy and a little sour, and it stops boiling. And when they say boiling, they mean CO2 escaping, which mimics the appearance of boiling, but obviously it's just gas released by the yeast bubbling up through the liquid. Um, So those become important outputs. There's all sorts of choices you can make here as a distiller to create different flavors. Obviously, um, wild yeast fermentation can be a choice. Uh, Oftentimes, this is a slower and lengthier fermentation because the natural yeast has to reproduce and build large enough to process and ferment as much sugar as is present. Uh, When you see those old wood fermenters, oftentimes they build up their own microbiome so that the yeast blossom faster and faster. I will say a lot of modern distilleries today, I've seen a lot in Louisville, uh, they still sterilize these tanks with steam sterilization. So that's not exactly what's happening, but I'm sure it does have an effect still. Uh, But in, you know, a lot of parts I'll see in Mexico, Uh, or the Caribbean, where that is not happening, they are getting this natural microbiome buildup that is their unique uh, expression. And there's yeast on everything. It's on your skin. It's on the molasses coming into the building. uh, It's on every surface. And so every place is going to have some presence of natural yeast. Uh, Studying the Masters of Wine, I was once challenged to write an essay about how there were... No, there were only natural fermentations. There are no natural fermentations. And in essence, what I ended up writing was, you know, there's yeast on everything. Unless you're doing a full sterilization of all of your equipment and then sterilizing your wash for fermentation, which is not unheard of in certain styles of spirits, um, you are going to have natural yeast at play and they're going to have an influence. And then on the side where I had to write about there are no natural fermentations, um, there's a lot of scientific research that the number one yeast that will take over and ferment, no matter if you wild ferment or not, is going to be Saccharomyces cerevisiae. This is simply because the words Saccharomyces cerevisiae translate to sugar eater. And this is the yeast that makes its existence off of consuming sugar and converting it to alcohol. So even if you're doing a wild fermentation, the number one yeast strain that's going to blossom and take over, um, and I shouldn't say strain, the species that will blossom and take over, it's going to be Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It's particular that I don't say strain because there are thousands and thousands of strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It is incredibly varied. There's so much experimentation to be done. Not all are created equal uh, and not all play well together. It's very important um, for us. We like to create a blend of yeast that we pitch into our fermentation. We do not sterilize our fermentation. So ours are considered what's called open top in that wild yeast get to play a role. Uh, They will add a lot of character and nuance that's specific to 
us and we also pitch in this blend of yeast that we feel creates a really unique and beautiful flavor that we're wanting to coax out as well. And it's important that in selecting those yeasts, they play well together in that if certain yeasts are combined, they'll release killer yeast toxin to attack each other and it will freeze your fermentation. It will come to a halt. It won't be high quality. The yeast will be under stress. So it's really important if you're combining yeast that you have an education on what strains play well together because it's not always a happy time at the party. So we always want to make sure we're doing our best there. Another element is going to be, you know, your primary and your secondary fermentation. And a primary fermentation is going to be typically the first few days of fermentation and it will be when the vast majority of sugar is converted to alcohol. So even in wine, beer, spirits, this happens relatively quickly depending on the temperature. The warmer the temperature, the faster this happens, and the cooler the temperature, the slower this happens. Warmth increases the activity of yeast, obviously to a certain point. Once you get over a certain temperature, it's actually quite harmful and damaging and can stress the yeast. And the yeast can throw off, you know, unpleasant aspects under this stress. Much over 100 degrees Fahrenheit is quite hard on yeast. Um, traditional ones for fermenting quality flavors. There are, of course, species of yeast meant to do very hard, very fast, very hot fermentations to get as much alcohol as possible in as short a period of time. You may have heard of turbo yeasts. They're not often known for their delicious and nuanced and complex flavors, but they're more of a yield-seeking option. Um, and then, so this primary fermentation, as I said, hotter temperature faster, cooler temperature slower, because cooler temperatures mean the yeast are moving more slowly. You might see bread bakers talk a lot about, you know, wanting to ferment in a cooler room or with cooler water for fans of the great british bake-off paul hollywood is always encouraging a cooler longer slower fermentation for more flavor um, and in wine you'll see this a lot too you know these delicate and intricate rieslings and you know unoaked sauvignon blancs that are fermented sort of at these cool temperatures to get lots of tropical and fruity and nuanced layered flavors. Um, these are common things to see. I would say an average whiskey fermentation is usually about 80 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit for three to five days. Um, and rum can last anywhere from, you know, in a traditional Puerto Rican style, perhaps 24, maybe 48 hours for a longer fermentation all the way over to Hamden Estate where their longest fermented mark is 21 days. Um, and when you get into these longer days, you get into secondary fermentation. Now secondary fermentation is not necessarily a fermentation as we would typically recognize it. It's more of a bacterial conversion. And in wine, you'll see this, they'll talk about primary fermentation to create alcohol and then secondary fermentation to create like malolactic fermentation that's malic acid being converted into lactic acid 
And this is being done by the addition or natural occurrence of bacteria that change those tart apple flavors over to creamy rich flavors. So in rum, this can look like a lot of different things. There can be a bacterial rest, and this is not uncommon in whiskey either. After your fermentation's done, giving it a bacterial rest to get a little tangy, to get a little bacterial conversion, create some organic acidity, um, get some more nuanced flavor. And then also you can see in rum, this gets much more complex when there's um, additions of things like muck, which are, well, I think we're going to have to have a whole episode on dunder and muck, because uh, I think it's a little too much to cover here. Um, but essentially, dunder uh, can be added to a fermentation. This is back set in whiskey. They're the same thing. So dunder is seen, or the process of using back set, all over the world. This is not unique and only special to Jamaica. What's special in Jamaica is the dunder will often be left to ripen a significantly longer time. And if then other additions are made to it, it can truly be left to ripen long term into muck. Um, and this is where you might see the addition of different fruits that bring specific yeasts and encourage specific bacteria to grow. This is where you see the pombe yeast come in. Um, they'll often do additions of jackfruit uh, to the muck, which bring a lot of natural pombe. Um, pombe creates very specific flavors, and it must be cultivated naturally like this um, by law in Jamaica, but also by practice. You know, there was talk for a little bit about the variety of yeast and how in the Jamaican GI, uh, distillers were only allowed to add the Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeast to the fermentation, but in truth, that is the yeast strain that is available for this option. There's not, you know, different species of yeast stockpiled in a warehouse. Saccharomyces cerevisiae is uniquely suited to being dried, stored, and repropagated in a way that other yeast species just are not. This is not a thing. They're not warehouses full of different species you can buy and use. They're very, very rare. So this is not a real concern, nor a practice anyone is doing or even really could do. So it's not a real thing. When people are talking about things like that, um, I, I wonder <laughs> where that's coming from. Um, and what's going to keep the rich variety of traditional methods alive are these really fascinating and beautiful natural cultivations of this yeast and bacteria in the Jamaican tradition. Um, I think they're really special and I think it's, you know, interesting to see a desire to just open a packet and replicate it because I think that this is a cultural, sustainable cultural practice that is sustained through the generation by the passing down of know-how. That's really special, it's really beautiful and very cultural and I have so much respect for what they're doing so I think we'll get into that in depth uh, in another episode but for today we're going to keep it to just strictly the fermentation classics so this secondary fermentation if there's an addition of dunder this can you know be a part of adding flavor as well um, and yeah this the secondary fermentation with the bacterial rest that gives you more uh, nuance and more layers of flavor. And I've been seeing some really cool things 
happening around the world um, with these sorts of practices. Sort of, you know, I, I'm always weary of someone who says they're doing something new um, because oftentimes it's not new. They just don't have an awareness of the people who actually do do that. Um, but there's been some really, really cool stuff going on and a lot of cross-pollination in an authentic way happening rather than, you know, appropriation, just going over and taking someone else's culture and reenacting it um, with more access and ability and visibility for greater profit. I think we're seeing some cool community cross-pollination happening there. So I touched a little bit on the time of fermentation. Obviously, the longer this secondary goes, different complexities, different flavors, and different character comes about. Also, at a certain point, once you have an alcoholic wash, there is acetobacter. So acetobacter consumes alcohol and turns alcohol into vinegar. So there's this really beautiful cycle where, you know, I always find it easy to explain with grapes on the vine. You have grapes on the vine, the skin is very thick. As it ripens and the sugars come ripe and it's the seeds inside mature and are ready to grow into their own plant, um, the skin on the grape softens, the yeast move into the grape, they ferment the grape, the fermentation uh, removes the outer coating on the seeds so that the seeds can be ready to grow into their own plant. This grape falls to the ground, it is now alcoholic, the alcohol is consumed by acetobacter into vinegar, and then this vinegar over time will re-degrade back into CO2 and water. The water goes into the soil, it feeds the grape, the CO2 goes into the air, the leaves uh, use it for photosynthesis, and the grape begins anew. So there's this really cool cycle that fermentation plays in nature, and we're just sort of stopping and capturing it and distilling it off at the peak point of the alcoholic conversion. So that's a little segue into some geekiness for you guys, but that's sort of the circle of life of fermentation and its completeness. So there's always risks to fermentation as well. I just mentioned this acetobacter that converts alcohol to vinegar. As this goes on, obviously you're losing potential alcohol, uh, which will be what you get out the other side of the still, and increasing the volatility. So a subtle tanginess to your fermentation is a good thing, but should it go for far too long, this can begin to turn into some volatile notes um, and some unpleasant flavors. So let's take a second to discuss flaws. And for me, there's a lot of flaw poten potentials in fermentation. A flaw is when a characteristic goes beyond the intention of the producer. And for me, when I'm smelling a spirit holistically, Hopefully, if it has a sense of place and, and personality, it communicates to me what it's trying to be. And I can get a sense of, was this what they intended? Is this what they were looking to create the seamless style with? So ethyl acetate is a common flaw, but again, it's in the eye of the beholder as far as what was the intention of the spirit. In a lower dose, it can be very fruity, very juicy, um, a spirit would almost probably be missing something without a subtle amount of it. 
But when it gets out of control, it can become very solvent uh, and aggressive and unpleasant. Um, geosmin or geosmin, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, is another one where in wine, this can absolutely give an aroma of minerality. There's a lot of discussion around the M word, minerality, in wine. Um, but there are talks that, you know, as it rains in the vineyard, water hits the stones, vapors rise up, and geosmin is a part of those vapors. It's sort of that wet rain on cement smell. It, the molecules cling to the grapes, and it comes into the winery. That is a discussion being had. It also is likely created in fermentation as well. In spirits, however, you often encounter geosmin or geosmin when you get some moldy grain, especially at, in whiskey, uh, and it can have a musty, dirty cellar, um, wet mud smell that's not as pleasant. Um, there's many ways the aroma of minerality comes about. It could be, you know, from an appropriate amount of sulfur, uh, another considered flaw. For me, this is a core flaw. If I'm smelling a bottle of wine to smell if it has TCA contamination and is corked, uh, I'm smelling a spirits for sulfur damage. That's sort of my go-to. Uh, matchstick, uh, overboiled cabbage, sewer gas, um, dirty drains. Those are all scents um, associated with this sulfury quality. Um, but again, a subtle amount of sulfur is necessary on the nose for structuring some aromas. It's when it gets out of control and it can be very stinky. Uh, yeah, that struck match smell. It's really, really, really unpleasant. Um, sometimes this can arise from improper nitrogen nutrition in a fermentation. Uh, it can arise from using a high sulfur production yeast. Uh, a big reason we don't use 100% wild yeast as of now at Privateer is we have so many local apple orchards that the yeast naturally blooming on apples produce a lot of sulfur, which is great for apples. Apples are so sweet, the sulfur gives it a little savory component. But on molasses, which is already high in sulfur, it can be a little unpleasant. So we're doing experiments there on how to bring about the wild yeast sort of microbiome culture we want to cultivate in our distillery, you know, whether it's planting more different types of plants like cherries and roses outside, um, et cetera, to kind of change that biome because of that sulfur risk. Um, yeah, so there's a couple, diacetyl. Um, diacetyl is sort of, in beer, it's a major flaw. Um, it's like butter, like buttered popcorn, like movie theater popcorn smell. In spirits, in some amount, some producers really like it. I've definitely smelled ones where I feel it was beyond the intended style of the producer and kind of verging on like butter stick nastiness um, that's less than enjoyable. Uh, it can also be quite cheesy, uh, which is a traditional aroma in a lot of mezcals and agave spirits. Um, and I definitely find that that is true to the intended style. So in passing there, you heard me just very casually mention nitrogen and some of the flavors that it impacts. Hold on, I'm going to take a sip of my toddy. And um, 
Yeah, there's all sorts of things you can do in fermentation to impact and coax different flavor. Um, as sort of a passing um, example of this, uh, I was lucky enough to go to the Lalamond Alcohol School in Jamaica with a bunch of incredible distillers for a week, and then also fortunate enough to be asked back to be their keynote speaker for their extra credit program, which is a two-day program in Montreal. And in that program, there was this really great study presented about organic versus inorganic nitrogen and yeast stirring and suspension in coaxing out different aromas and flavors from the same fermentation. And so, you know, phenethanol alcohol, um, which is sort of this soft pillowy rose character, it's very important in rum, um, particularly Caribbean rum. It's one that I hear talked about a lot um, and something, you know, I'm always looking to coax out of our fermentations as well. I really love like a beautiful Northern Rhone Syrah. It's got like this black pepper, rose petal kind of delicate thing going on. So I really love this aroma. And they were presenting that, you know, a fermentation that was, you know, higher in organic nitrogen content uh, increases it. And then it was much less pronounced in ones that had more inorganic nitrogen uh, to the ratio. And that agitation of the fermentation, so the stirring of the lees, the lees being the dead yeast who fall into the bottom of the tank, it also increases this rose character and aroma. Whereas, you know, positive acetaldehyde, so this apple sort of pear drop flavor, you know, it's tasty in small amounts, but really negative in larger amounts, um, was found that agitation of a fermentation can reduce in overtly acetaldehyde fermentation. Um, and that a use of inorganic nitrogen over a higher organic nitrogen content accelerates the production. So basically, you know, if you're going for this rosy character, this phenethyl alcohol, you're probably going to be reducing your acetaldehyde because they seem to be on opposite sides of this organic versus inorganic nitrogen ratio as well as this agitation, no agitation. Um, and then alpha decan... Uh, ethyl caproate, uh, one of my favorites. And for those who remember the Privateer Silver Reserve RIP, uh, it always had this intense honeydew melon, citrusy, fresh banana flavor. We absolutely coax this out of our New England white rum as well. It's Ethyl caproate is one of those ones I really love. Um, it really speaks to me. And so this can be increased in a fermentation with agitation of a fermentation. And as you know, at Privateer, we stir all of our fermentations continually. And it increases with the production of the use of organic nitrogen over inorganic nitrogen. So again, this is sort of similar to that soft rose character in what it needs in a fermentation to blossom. This can also be uh, increased by the use of a muck pit and jackfruit. Uh, in that muck pit also encourages a lot of the precursors that end up creating an ethyl caproate aroma. And this is where you can get those gorgeous guava flavors in Hamden and Worthy Park um, that are really special. Um, butyric acid, again, in the eye of the beholder as far as levels that you want to create an intended style. Uh, it can express itself as pineapple, brown, just ripe banana, 
green papaya, it can become overt um, and walk the line of a flaw depending on what the intended style is. I think this is really important um, to respect that not every culture and community's intended style is intended for you. Um, I personally really love a lot of these flavors. Again, if butyric acid is very high, it starts to smell like baby vomit is the common descriptor used in the scientific community. Um, but in these smaller levels, it can be really beautiful. And I often compare butyric acid to like the aroma of jasmine, that in studying wine, when you begin to rip apart these scent molecules, you'll always find something embedded in them that has the smell of death and decay. And that's part of what makes it so alluring to the human nose. You know, our brain, it smells this scent and it sets off an alarm bell in your brain that says danger, which usually makes you recoil from whatever it is you're about to eat or drink. But in a very, very small dose, it sends a little electricity to your brain saying, pay attention, pay attention. And that's what makes you want to smell that jasmine flower so much more deeply and keep breathing more deeply and inhale it. This is very true of these like beautiful butyric acid rums that have this little bit of pull and allure and you can't quite put your finger on it. And then when you really dig in, it's all this juicy pineapple and banana going on. So I think it's a really beautiful thing that they cultivate there. Um, so the addition of acid slops. So acid slops are a part of fermentation we didn't discuss. I think that's going to go in the dunder and muck episode. Uh, but it's common in Jamaica to fresh press sugar cane, let it sit out, ferment, go through a bacterial rest, and become quite vinegary. And then you would add this in very small doses to your fermentations, which would cause a little stress on the yeast and cause them to release really fruity aromas um, and a lot of character here as well. It's also thought to be very pombe-driven. Um, and so... Yeah, there's all sorts of ways to achieve butyric acid, um, and we'll dive deeper into that. But that's just a quick touch on when we're talking about fermentation at a technical level. You know, we're, we're interested in all of the nutritional aspects of the fermentation. Are you stirring your lees or not? Are you fermenting on your lees or are you not? You know, a lot of distilleries that have a craft brewing background, you'll see a conical bottom on the tank, meaning all of the yeast is gathered in a very small space. So it's not in contact with the fermentation. And for me, that creates a very distinct flavor that is not as desirous for my personal style as having that yeast suspended and in contact and being stirred. Very different character. So when we're talking about fermentation, there's a lot more going on than just sugar becomes alcohol, alcohol gets distilled. There's so many elements, so many things we're excited about. So hopefully with that background, when I give you a run through in the next little part about how we ferment at Privateer, you'll be able to sort of extrapolate what you could expect in character um, and what it means on a new level. So without further ado, let's dive into how Privateer does their fermentations. So I've touched a little bit about it throughout the podcast, but here's a straight rundown of how Privateer Rum ferments our wash. As I mentioned in the beginning, um, we add molasses to warm water. We pump that into a fermenter already filled with chilled water that brings our bricks, which is how we measure our sugar content, 
to exactly where we want it to be so that by the time we ferment all of the sugar, we are at about 9% ABV. We start our fermentation at 74 degrees Fahrenheit. We pitch a blend of yeast. Um, there are a couple different blends for a couple different marks, uh, but typically our average mark that we use the most is a three yeast blend and there is also natural wild yeast and bacteria allowed to participate in our fermentation since we do the open top style. Our fermentation temperature creeps up to about 78 degrees at the end of fermentation. We do a six day fermentation. So most of the primary fermentation is complete in about three to four days. And then we get a two to three bacterial day, two to three day bacterial rest to allow a lot more flavor complexity. And what's happening at this time is, you know, ethanol is a molecule has different arms off of it. It's not complete, so it's always grabbing onto and breaking apart from other molecules to try and complete itself. This is happening in those fermentation tanks, and this means we're getting more and more molecular connections, which are, in essence, esters. So whenever you have acidity with alcohol in the presence of oxygen, uh, which you do in fermentation, and which you do in aging as well, you're going to get this more and more nuanced flavor. So when you smell that bottle of wine and it smells like roses and black pepper, there's no roses and black pepper in it. What has happened is through fermentation, these different molecular arrangements have occurred that create aromas that trick your brain into thinking you are smelling those things. So this nice, long, slow fermentation allows us to create that level of complexity of these different molecular arrangements and connections and long chains um, to give all sorts of unique flavor and more flavor complexity and more flavor depth. Again, we're dropping our pH. We begin at about 5.1 and we end up about 3.8. In uh, some of our more nuanced and more acidic and more tangy marks where we're really going for that deep core of flavor, our pH will drop all the way to 3.2. Um, and so for us, that's really important to get all that organic acidity for flavor creation later on. When our fermentation is done, uh, we will measure the sugar content. And if we've done our job, there's no fermentable sugar left. The fermentation tastes quite dry and quite tangy. Um, it's almost like a sour brown ale, uh, if you will. And that's what we put into the still to distill off. So it's all about creating this beautiful environment where exactly what we want to grow grows and what we don't want to grow will not grow. It's very important, as I mentioned, we start our fermentation of a pH of about 5.1. From a pH of 3 to 5 is where yeast can thrive and live. But a lot of the negative competing bacterias do not, and they are unable to attach themselves to the sugars and make them unfermentable or cause problems um, or a lack of hygiene in the fermentation. And that's when you'll see, you know, if you're using a lot of blackstrap, your pH is going to be much higher because there's so many salts um, and ash and other elements in there that your pH is going to be buffered. The acidity is going to be buffered. Your pH will be higher. And that's when you'll see the addition of dunder. 
added. So that dunder is after you ferment and then after you distill, what's left in that still, you've concentrated the acidity created throughout your fermentation. And you can add some of that back to bring the pH of your fermentation down to that safe window to create a really good hygiene for your fermentation. It's also a way to stretch water historically if you didn't have a lot of fresh water available because you wanted to add a material, a, um, a substance in which you could ferment, and it's a way to stretch that water. So there's some discussion historically in spoken word about that being a technique to stretch water uh, in places where maybe not necessarily a lot of fresh water was available. So that's just kind of a little geeky side note. Um, yeah, so our fermentation, six days, 74 to 78 degrees, grade A molasses, beautiful water, yeast, and natural yeast and bacteria, and that's where we end up. So I hope this was very helpful. Please feel free to shoot me any questions on Instagram at Half Pint Maggie. Um, you'll see sort of an icon for this on my tiles. That's a great place to pop your question. Um, again, my email is on my bio if you need to message me. And thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen. Really appreciate it. again for listening in please keep all of your topics and ideas coming uh, hit me up on social media and we'll continue to make more of these to help support everyone in education and understanding not just of what we're up to at privateer but in the spirits world as a whole thank you guys so much thanks bye